If you're new with us, my name is Evan. I'm on staff here at Epic. And we are right in the middle of a series called I'd Rather Be Fishing. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this idea that when Jesus invited his disciples to come along with him, the first followers that came along with him, he said, look, if you follow me, I'm going to make you something different. He had this agenda for them and he didn't hide it. He didn't put it aside somewhere where they couldn't find it. He said, I've got an agenda for you. I'm going to make you different. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And we have that same agenda, right? When, when God says for us, when you choose to follow Jesus, I'm going to make you different. He has that exact same agenda for us. You're going to follow me. And after some time, you're going to fish because followers fish. They don't just follow. After some period of time, they realize there's more to it. And followers of Jesus end up fishing. We see it all over the New Testament. We see it in the lives of the people around us because what they have experienced, what we experience is the most important thing that happened in our lives. Why wouldn't we want to tell somebody else about it? Why wouldn't we want to offer somebody else the chance to experience that as well? We looked at the idea that we were fish once and somebody fished for us and we are so grateful that somebody chose to fish for us. We want to be able to share that experience with somebody else. So followers fish. Now, last week, Tim talked to us about the why behind the fishing. Why does God change us? Why do we have to do this? Talking about Jesus, talking about our life as we live it now is not a super comfortable thing to do. As Christ followers, we love the fact that somebody fished for us, but ask us to talk about it. And we're like, no, that's not really my thing. Somebody else will do that. So why does God want to change us so we talk about it? And here's the reason why. What happened that made Christianity a thing it wasn't that somebody came up with this great set of morals or values or a belief system and said, hey, this looks really good. Let's do this. Christianity at its core is rooted in an act in history. It's an event. It's not a, a belief system. It's not just about morals and values and being better people. Christianity is rooted in an event, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. And how do people learn about history? We talk about it. We tell people. None of us know what happened in ancient Rome unless somebody teaches it to us. None of us learn early American history unless somebody teaches it to us. Jesus' story is history, and history has to be told. So God says, I need you to go tell people that it happened. In fact, that's why those early New, Christ New Testament Christians got into so much trouble. They got into trouble because they couldn't stop talking about it. And when they were told to stop, they said, we can't help it. It's not like we came up with this. We just saw it happen. Now we want to let other people know that it happened. And it is so interesting to me that even though we know that it's a real thing and that it happened, and even though we know that we should be fishing and we are grateful that somebody fished for us, man, we step away from that as quickly as we can more often than not. We shy away from the responsibility to talk about Jesus. And why is that? It's because we're afraid. When it comes down to it, it comes down to a matter of fear. Now, none of us like talking about being afraid because it's a weakness and we don't like showing weakness. And so we look at it like this. We have all of these what if questions that circle our minds over and over and over again whenever we think about the idea of talking about Jesus. Right? What if... They ask me a hard question that I don't know how to answer, right? What if they ask me something and I don't know where it is in the Bible or how to find it or what to do with the question they're asking me because, man, that's a question I've had for years. I don't know what to do with that. 
What, what if I say it the wrong way? What if I don't get the story quite right? What if I don't get all the details? What if I walk up to somebody and just and just vomit words all over them and somehow they've got to piece it all together because I messed it up. What am I going to do with that? What if it gets awkward? What if it gets uncomfortable? What if I get fired because I talk about it? What if talking about this means that I'm going to lose a relationship, a friendship that I've had for years or decades? And I know as soon as I bring up that topic, that person is done with me. What if? What if, what if? And those fears that we have overwhelm that feeling, that knowledge, that that's something in our hearts that goes, I know I should be doing this. I ought to be doing this. I want to do this. But those what ifs stop us cold and we don't often get past them. I had a job where I was pretty good friends with my supervisor. And we talked about stuff outside of work, right? We would go out and hang out and we'd talk about what we were doing in our lives. We would talk about friends. We would talk about things we were into. We would talk about stuff we were part of. And we talked about God. We talked about church. That person knew that I was a Christian. They knew that the decisions that I made, the things that I did in life were a lot of times uh, guided by the fact that I was a Christian, the fact that I believed in God. We talked about the Bible. They actually had a little bit of church history, and so we would talk about stuff occasionally. You know what I never talked about? I never talked about Jesus. I never got past that hurdle. I never talked with that person about Jesus because I was scared to death about it, what, what it might look like Monday morning after they'd sat through it over the weekend. I never invited them to church with me because I was so worried that they wouldn't come and I'd have to deal with that Monday morning and the awkward situation that that might be, or that we might lose our friendship and then just go to this really strange work environment. I was kind of worried that they would come and it'd be a really bad experience Sunday morning and then I'd have to deal with that Monday morning. Maybe things would go poorly. Maybe Trent would come out and tell one of his amazing jokes and they'd be on their Monday going like, I didn't get it at all. I'm really sorry. That's just not for me. I let the what ifs, I let the fears, I let the questions stop me from sharing the most important thing about my life. Now, if you have ever experienced anything like that, if you feel that way, if you ask yourself those questions, let me assure you, you are in really good company because those New Testament guys, those followers of Jesus, the ones that followed him step for step for three and a half years, they were scared out of their minds. This wasn't this amazing group of courageous guys who were looking to change the world. These guys were cowards. When Jesus was arrested, just before his trial and death, do you know what happened? Where were his followers? Nowhere near him. Jesus is arrested in the garden and they take off. They are running, they're gone because they know the same thing could happen to him. They were scared to death. And even Peter, who kind of decides to follow along after a little while and goes to see how bad the trial's going, he's standing out in the courtyards and this little servant girl comes up to him, a little girl, and says, hey, weren't you with the guy in there they've got on trial? And no, I knew nothing. I don't know him. I don't know what is going on. I had nothing to do with this. And he bails. A little servant girl. This is a guy who's been following Jesus, watching him do amazing things for three and a half years, scared to death. After Jesus is crucified, where do we find his followers? They're hidden, worried about what might happen next in an upper room, 
hiding behind closed doors, worried that at every scuff of a boot on a cobblestone, every time a door shuts nearby, someone is coming for them. They're scared to death. These group, this group of people that Jesus said, hey, come follow me, and they chose to, when it came down to it, they were just like us. They were scared. They were worried about the what ifs. And then something changes for them between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus, and Acts, which is where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, right at the beginning of your New Testament there. And it might be labeled in your Bible as the Acts of the Apostles, and that's exactly what this book is, right? It's, it's a collection of the stories of what the apostles, what those early followers of Jesus did to start the church, how they spread the story of Jesus. And the reason we're here this morning is because something changed in these guys. They went from cowards to courageous almost overnight. And we want to look at what exactly changed for them. What was different? What happened in their lives that they said, I want to do exactly what Jesus is asking me to do. Not hide, not run, not get behind this fear and the what ifs and try and figure out what's next, but to move forward with Jesus. So when we pick up our story today, we're picking up right where we left off last week. So I want to give you like the, the two minute rundown of what happened last week. And if you were here, I would just just bear with me for just a minute, but for everybody else. Last week, we looked at this story of Peter and John, two of Jesus's closest followers. They were going to the temple to pray. And this is all after Jesus, his death, his resurrection. So they're going to the temple to pray. And there in front of the temple gates is this beggar. And he's a crippled beggar. He hasn't walked his entire life. In fact, there are people who carry him and put him there every day because all he can do to make it through is to beg for money. So they walk up and everybody knows the guy and everybody knows when you walk past this guy, he puts his hand up, you give him a little something and you go on into the temple and do your thing because he's much worse off than any of us are. And so Peter walks up and the guy's looking for a handout and Peter says, I don't have any money, really sorry. Um, let me see what I can do. Why don't you get up and walk? He looks at the guy and he says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And this beggar who has never walked a day in his life stands up off his mat. And he puts weight on his ankles and suddenly he can stand and he can walk. And all of a sudden he's dancing and he's jumping and he's running into the temple. And all of the people inside the temple courtyards are going, that's the guy who, what, what in the world just happened? And he can't keep his mouth shut because he just figured out how to walk. And so he's telling everybody, these guys, they just said the name of Jesus. I stood up. I don't know, but this is awesome. And this crowd gathers. Peter and John walk in, and Peter, never being one to miss the opportunity to share a sermon, walks in, sees a few thousand people, and goes, okay, I can do this. And he begins to tell the story of Jesus. And by the thousands, people are beginning to follow. Now, the temple leaders look, and they go, this is really bad for business. If they're following him, that means they're not following us. We can't have this. They've got to stop. We just put their leader to death that Jesus are talking about. We just killed him. So we thought we were done with this. Now we've got to figure out what's next. So they arrest Peter and John. They put them in jail overnight. The next morning, they get them up and they realize, the leaders realize, we can't do anything to them right now. There are thousands of people out here who saw what happened, saw they didn't do anything wrong. So we can't really do anything to them. It'll incite a riot. And so they look at Peter and John. And they say, look, we're going to let you go, but you got to quit talking about Jesus. And Peter, never one to miss a sermon opportunity, 
gives a mini sermon to the people who just put him in jail and said, I'm sorry, can't help it. I saw this happen. I didn't make this up. This isn't something I just came up with. It happened. I have to tell somebody. I have to tell everybody. And the leaders, unable to do much else, kind of let these guys go. That's where we pick up our story. In verse 23 of Acts chapter four, now as soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. Now, if I'm part of that conversation, here's my piece of it. I can't believe you guys just got out with a night in jail. Do you realize what they could have done to you? Do you realize what could have happened? They just killed Jesus about a month ago or so. How in the world did you guys get out with this? So look, we need to maybe take it down a notch. Maybe we don't go around with the awesome, great healing miracles. Maybe we just kind of help people along. You know, maybe we should be talking to dozens instead of thousands. Maybe we shouldn't do it right in the temple courtyards. Maybe we should go somewhere else where they'll be a little more receptive to our message. Like that's what I would be wanting to do because, you know, let's not make everything more difficult than it needs to be. But these early believers, they had something else in mind. Verse 24, when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And here's what they prayed. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. How many of your prayers start that way? Most of my prayers for most of my life have gone kind of like this. Dear God, thanks for today. Thanks for this food, because we always pray around our food. Thanks for this food. Please bless it to us. God, I, I, I pray that you would help us have a good day today. I pray that you would help us to feel better. I pray that you would keep us safe as we're driving around. Please be with so-and-so as they're going through such and such. In Jesus' name, amen. That's, that's what my prayer life has looked like through a good portion of my life because it's really easy to get into saying the same things over and over and over again, and we forget who we're talking to. But these early believers, they stop and they take a moment to recognize exactly who they're praying to. Oh, sovereign God. This is God who is in control, who is in all authority, all power, who has a plan and got everything figured out. He is the ultimate authority in our lives. This is sovereign God. You created everything, all the stuff we see, the stuff we know, the stuff we don't see. You did it without lifting a finger. You spoke and out of nothing, you created everything we know. This is the God they're praying to. And they, they put him way up here in perspective. They are obviously somewhere not up here. They recognize the God that they are praying to and they recognize who they are as well. And the fact that he is way, way above anything that they could imagine. And then they continue on with this really interesting prayer that will break down here. So in verse 25, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor, David, your servant saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. 
Now that seems like a really odd thing to add into a prayer, but let me tell you what they're doing here. You see, as Israelites, as Jews, they would have had some very basic for them biblical knowledge from day one, right? These weren't really educated people, but this is what they got. Every child was taught the, the Torah, right? The five books of the law, what we consider the first several books of the New Old Testament for us. It was drilled into their head from day one. So they knew their story, they knew their people, and they knew the God that they followed. They were also taught the Psalms. Now, this is a, a collection of praise and worship and prayers and poetry and these things that tell us a little bit about who God is and what he's done. And they would have memorized that stuff over time. And just like for a lot of us, the things just become rote, right? They're just things that we learn. And they suddenly begin to connect the dots and go, oh, you've had a plan from day one, right? The stuff that we learned as a kid that was written by King David in the Psalms, this stuff about the fact that the nations are against you and everything had put together a plan against you. That's what we saw happen with Jesus. You see, Herod, he was the guy who pushed forward the trial of Jesus and he thought he was throwing his authority around. And they're putting together the dots into a picture and they go, oh, no, no, no. Herod wasn't doing anything except for what God had already prepared for him to do because sovereign God is in control and has a plan. Pilate, the governor of Rome or the Roman governor there in the area, he thought he was getting out of a bad situation, right? The trial's happening. He looks at Jesus and says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy, so I can't kill him. What do you want me to do? And they said, crucify him. You have to kill him. And Pilate decides instead of cause a riot, he washes his hands of Jesus's blood and says, look, there's nothing wrong with him. I don't see anything to kill him for. You guys want to do it? Go ahead. I'm out. He thought he was stepping out of the way and saving himself. God was using that to make sure that the sacrifice that needed to happen for our sins happened. That Pilate didn't stop the crucifixion, but made sure it went on the Jews that were against him, the Gentiles that were against him, everybody who was against Jesus and moving all of this forward were all for the plan of sovereign God. That's what they begin to recognize. And that's the linchpin. That's why all of a sudden they begin to go from cowardice to courage. It's because they think about all these different things. They go, we're serving a God who's had this put together thousands of years ago, told us about it, said, hey, this is going to happen. And it happened right in front of our eyes. This is sovereign God whom we serve. You know, we hit moments in our lives, seasons in our lives, where it feels like absolutely everything is turned against us. We can't win for anything. It gets dark the going gets tough. And literally we feel like we can't take another step forward because somebody else or something else is gonna trip us up. And what do we do in those moments? When I'm in the middle of that, most of the time I'm praying, God, get me out of this. God, would you move whatever this is out of my way so I can get forward and get on with life? Can you heal me? Can you save me? Can you protect me? God, can you do something for me in this? It is so easy and so natural for us to allow those tough times to kind of blind us from the plan of God. 
And in those moments, most in those moments, we need to remember who we're praying to, oh, sovereign God, who has a plan that we probably can't even imagine. We can't begin to imagine. And instead of praying to get out of those seasons, we should be praying, God, what's your plan in this season? And what do you want me to do in it? And that's what we see out of these early Christians. So verse 28, everything that they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And then here's their plan as they recognize, or here's their prayer as they recognize God's plan. And now, O Lord, hear their threats. Not God save us. God protect us. God keep us out of jail. God keep them from hurting us or our families. Make this easier. Make this so that we can take your story, right? That's not what they pray. God, hear their threats. Just recognize that they're against us and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Another translation says it this way. And now, O Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In some of their darkest moments, They are praying that God give them the ability to speak for him. Do you know how many times I've prayed that prayer? Zero. The closest I can think of that I got to that was on a missions trip to Venezuela when I was a kid. And I prayed, I think, that God would give the translator boldness to speak because I didn't know what I was saying (laughs) And so God, would you make sure that he says the right thing so that the people who are listening can get the message? I don't know that I've ever actually stopped and said, God, would you let me speak your word with boldness? Because that's a scary prayer. That's a game changer. That changes the way I live my life. That changes the way I talk to people. That changes the opportunities that I either take or pass up. God, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Why do they pray for this? You see, they understand that sovereign God has a plan and is going to let that plan play out no matter what. They're not gonna get in the way. It doesn't matter because God's gonna move that plan forward. He's already begun to use some of the most powerful people that they know to make sure the plan happens. And it's happening right in front of them. And here's the cool part, is he is inviting them to be part of the plan. He's saying, look, I have a plan, it's gonna happen. Come be players in it. Come take part in this, come participate. Don't sit this out. And what is amazing to me is that they don't decide to step back and go, God's in charge, he's got this figured out, he's all powerful, I'll just kind of let him do his thing, right? Obviously it's all gonna happen anyway because All of us were against Jesus being arrested, crucified, right? That just didn't make sense to us. It happened anyway. So if God's going to make his plan happen, why don't I just let him do it? But that's not what we see happen. You see, they realize how amazing it was that sovereign God was inviting them into the process and all of them get motivated to become part of it. 
Instead of stepping back, they rush in headlong. God, give us boldness to speak when we're up against torture and death and imprisonment and the chance that we are never allowed to show our face in our communities again. God, give us boldness to speak. It just absolutely amazes me how motivating this was for them. And as they prayed for boldness, realize that they weren't praying just for volume. Volume is different than boldness. Volume is the guy on the street shouting at everybody, you're all going to hell, you're all going to hell. I had one of those guys in my college up in Delaware um, when I was in school. He would sit on the, on the corner and for hours every day, people would walk by and he would preach and say, you're all going to hell. Good luck with that. Like that's what that felt like. That wasn't boldness. That was volume. Me standing here on stage talking to you guys about Jesus, this isn't boldness. So you walked in here expecting me to say something about God or the Bible or Jesus. And so this is a very safe space. Even if you're a visitor, even if you've never been here before, you at least knew what you were walking into. And so this is safe. This isn't bold. I might frustrate a few of you, make you uncomfortable. It might be an intimidating idea, whatever we end up talking about from stage, but this isn't bold. Boldness is choosing to speak up when something's at risk. When there's an opportunity and you choose to take it instead of letting it pass by, even though there's something at risk. In an everyday situation, it looks like this. A few months ago, my wife Carla and I took our kids up to the library, up at Flagler Library here. They've got a really cool kids area. And so we went with them and Carla goes every couple of weeks and picks out books for the kids. So we have something new to read during story time at night. Otherwise I just start repeating the same things over and over again. And the poor kids get tired of it. And so we get new books. So we go in and I was off that morning and we sit down and I go in with the kids while Carla's picking out the books to let them play. And I sit down and my daughter Ainsley, she's uh, two and a half at this point, And she sees this other little girl and they start playing together and they're really cute. And the other little girl, her parents are off like a couple tables over and we do like the polite parent thing. Like I smile and nod and wave and oh, your daughter's so cute. How old is she? Because that's what you do as parents. And what's her name? Her name is Ainsley. We don't talk about ourselves. We talk about our kids and that's it. It's a little awkward, but that's what you do as parents. And to be very honest, I was done at that point. Like I did the thing I knew I was supposed to do. I was done being social for the day. And so I physically turned and put my shoulder here and watched the kids. Not my finest hour, but that's what I did. <laughs> About 10 minutes later, my wife gets done picking out books and she comes and sits down at the table with the parents because she's an adult and knows how to be social. And so I get up and I go and sit down and Carla strikes up a conversation and starts talking to them and we introduce ourselves. Um, and we find out that they're new to the area. And it was really cool because they said, you know, we both work from home off and on all week long. And so our daughter doesn't get a chance to play with any other kids. So it's really cool that she's playing with your daughter. It's nice to see that happen. And so Carla stops and recognizes an opportunity and writes down her cell phone number and says, hey, look, why don't you take my number and anytime you want your daughter to have somebody to play with, send me a text and I'll meet you at the library and we'll hang out and we'll let their kids hang, or our kids hang out and we'll just let them have a good time. And then she decides to take it one step further. She chooses to be bold at the moment. 
And she says, hey, if you're new to the area, I don't know what you do for church. I don't know if you go to church. I don't know if that's your thing, but we're part of this really cool church called Epic. It meets down at the middle school just down the road. We'd love if you came with us one Sunday. And she chose in the moment when something was at risk to take the opportunity and speak. Now, don't get me wrong. This wasn't like a life or death risk, right? It wasn't like a whole lot was up here, but there was something at risk. It could have gotten awkward really fast. Those people could have looked at us and gone, oh, great, the crazy Jesus people are here. Bye, and done, and they're out. Like, we could have been those people in Palm Coast. (laughs) But to Carla, it was more important to take the opportunity and to choose to be bold. That's boldness. In everyday life, that's what it looks like to be bold. And that's why those early Christians were getting in trouble so often. It wasn't volume. It was that they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. They were choosing to be bold in their moments. In all of this, as I've prepared the last couple of weeks, I realized that I'm not as bold as I should be most of the time. I'm not always the one to step out and take the opportunity. And as I've looked back over my life as a Christ follower, I've actually seen over and over again all of these opportunities. I went, oh, I could have been bold there, and I could have been bold there, and I could have been bold there. And so I love that this is the message I got to talk on because it made me do some very serious self-reflection. I had to ask myself, what's wrong with me? Why in the world am I not choosing to take the opportunities? And here's what I realized about myself. I have lost sight of sovereign God. I've got into the habit of, dear God, bless my day, make my kids healthy, protect us, help us to pay our bills, make sure we get through the afternoon. Thanks for the food. Amen. And I've put God into this little box and I've chosen not to step out of that. And this week, I was challenged to remember who I serve, sovereign God, to choose to remember that he is active in our community, right? This God who has a plan, he is doing something just like he was in the first century. He is doing something here in Flagler County with our community, with our generation, and he's offering the opportunity for us to be part of that, for me to be a part of that. And there's honor in that. There is an honor that sovereign God would say, here, I'm doing this. You want to come be a part of it too? And I'd lost sight of that. I'd lost sight of how amazing it was that he chose to include me. And so this week, there's this challenge that I came up with that I'm putting for myself, but I want to ask you guys or encourage you guys to take it up as well. And it's not invite somebody to Epic for Easter. That was at the beginning. It doesn't count. So that's just a bonus. You guys just get to do that. The challenge that I had this week is a, it's a little tougher. Um, I want to encourage you 
that no matter what your prayer life looks like right now, don't take it and change everything. Don't look at, at modifying everything you're doing right now. Whatever your prayer life looks like, at the very end, dear God, bless my day. God, help me to get through this. God, make sure I can pay my mortgage this month. At the very end, tack on, oh yeah. And God, would you enable me to speak your word with boldness? God, would you enable me to speak your word with boldness? That is a scary thing to add on to our prayer lives, but it's life-changing. And here are the two things that will happen if we choose to pray this. One is that all of a sudden we will become very aware of the opportunities that God has for us. Those people that he puts in our lives. I don't know if you remember, but two weeks ago, I talked about the fact that each of us is perfectly positioned in somebody's life, right? God's message, our personality and our life circumstances combined with the other person's space or time in life right now. We are perfectly positioned to speak into their life with the opportunity to change their eternity, right? We have this little window of life and I want this to have so much more value than it does. And God can use this to change somebody's eternity if we are willing to be bold. So we'll be more aware of the opportunities. The second, the more unfortunate of the two is that we will be forced to face the what ifs. What if this gets uncomfortable? What if this person turns around and walks away from me? What if I lose a friend? We will come head on to those fears and have to make a choice of what we're going to do with it. Now, here's what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to ask for boldness anyway, because, and here's it for me. If I truly believe I serve, oh, sovereign God, then who cares about the what ifs? They're not under my control. I serve a God with a plan. I serve a God who is powerful. I serve a God who knows a whole lot more than I do. So why do I care about the what ifs? I don't. I'm gonna step up. I'm gonna speak boldly. I'm gonna let God deal with the aftermath because he's gonna be able to figure out a whole lot better than I am. All I have to do is open my mouth and speak. So God, enable me to speak boldly. God is sovereign. He is in charge. He is in control. And he is inviting every single person in this room to be part of what he is doing right now. So this week, will you take up the challenge and will you pray, God, enable me to speak boldly and then let God do everything else. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this has been one of the more challenging things I've had to study and deal with internally and then talk about. But God, how life-changing is it that you want us to be part of what you're doing? How amazing is it, God, that you want us as partners in this? And so God, I pray, I pray this week, God, that you would enable me to speak boldly not to live out a good life, God, not to be a good example, not to show somebody through my actions, but truly, God, to open my mouth and speak your word. 
and then let you deal with everything else. Because the opportunity to touch somebody's eternity is worth it. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would see that you have a plan and God, we would know that what you have is so much better than what we could put together. And this week, Father God, this week, I pray for opportunities to touch somebody's eternity. God, I pray for opportunities that you put in front of us, that you engineer, God, that you create. And all we have to do is open our mouths and speak. Be with us this week, Father God. And Lord, thank you for your goodness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, thank you so much for being here this morning. Come back next week as we wrap up this series. We're gonna talk about the how behind everything else. We'll see you guys next Sunday.